The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. One of the books that I enjoyed as a younger person was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I don't know how many of you have read that story. It's the sequel to Tom Sawyer and... Huck is a little bit of a juvenile delinquent. Uh, He is taken in by the widow Douglas, who is going to civilize Huck. And as the book starts, he's been out of shape because she won't let him smoke, and yet she takes snuff, and so he's complaining about that. And she's talking about the bad place and the good place as the book begins. And she's sure Tom is going to the bad place, and she's trying to tell Huck how to go to the good place. But he's not interested in spiritual things until... Family devotions one night where they turn to the story that we're going to turn to today in Exodus chapter 2. And here's how Huck tells it. After supper, she got out her book and learned me about Moses and the bulrushers. And I was in a sweat to find out all about him, this Moses and these bulrushers. He says, but by and by, she let it out that Moses had been dead a considerable time. So then I didn't care about him no more, because I don't take no stock in dead people. Here she was, a bothering about Moses, which was no kin to her and no use to anybody being gone, you see. And that's how Mark Twain tells the story, but probably speaking for himself and others who who don't care about the Moses they learned about when they were a kid, and don't really see how, how this guy who's been gone a long time ago, how that could actually be of use to anybody. And, and many think of the Bible as a story of, of, of these boring dead people who don't relate to our life today. But this is a living book, and we're going to see that again from this very story. There is great use to us, and this is incredibly relatable to us. This is not only applicable to us, this is our spiritual family of faith that we're reading about here. And and in many ways, they are like us today, even though we're 3,500 years later. And I think in Exodus 2, Huck heard that word bulrushers, and and he starts thinking, maybe this is going to be an action story, you know, with guys rushing up to, to fight other people. And then he's a little bummed when the story ends in verse 10, and it seems like there's just a bunch of women, and there's this boy who's been gone from a long time ago, who's been long gone. But if he had kept reading, this very chapter right here has some exciting action and some adventure. And, and there's a, a man actually in the story, if you would keep going, who, who does rush to get involved in three different fights in what we're going to read. And, and there's a, a fugitive manhunt in this story. And there is a, an outlaw who, who's going to get together with some in-laws. He's going to rescue them from, from bad guys. And, and in the end of the story, there is going to be some great treasure to consider. There's, there's even greater reward than, than anyone has ever found here in America to consider in this passage. And there is entertainment in this story. Uh, we saw some of that last week in, in verse 9. This, this mom of Moses, she actually gets paid to do kitty care for her own kid. And it's, it, it's, there's drama as well in this story. The king orders all these baby boys to be killed, and then it's the daughter of the king 
who takes this baby boy in and raises this baby boy who's going to be used to deliver Israel and defeat her father. Let's pick up this story in Exodus 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. And and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And the idea there is hospitality, bringing him into our home. Moses, verse 21, was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. How many of us are in school in some way, either teaching school or you're attending classes or starting up in this next month? Raise your hand. All right, this is is a back-to-school time we think about. And and really, as I'm thinking about this passage here, this is a a back-to-school in some ways passage because Moses grew up, he would have been educated in the finest schools while he's growing up of the mightiest nation on earth, but, but he's going to go back to school here in the story to learn life lessons. He's going to learn about what really matters, what's really valuable in life, which he hadn't learned in his earlier years in school. There's no Egyptian Ivy League university that's going to be able to teach him God's wisdom or be able to teach him how to wait on the Lord or even how to bring justice about rightly. Or how do you solve conflicts between two quarreling brothers biblically? Moses fails the test here. But God's going to help him. He's going to help him learn from his mistakes. 
He's going to give him opportunities where he can study and reflect on what he got wrong. He's going to get a second chance. It's going to take a while. It's going to take 40 plus years before he's ready for the career that God would have for him. But what he's going to get here is better than student loans funded by Egyptian taxpayers. He's going to get a real education and real forgiveness. Where actually his past is going to be taken care of, not by others, but by God. And God is going to actually give him a future. Despite his past criminal record, God's going to give him a job here. But he's preparing him for a better job through the job that he's going to get in these years as a shepherd. But first, in a sense, he's being enrolled in some classes he didn't want, like Escape 101, Desert Survival 201. And there's a long-term, in-person residency that he's going to have with this Reuel. He's going to meet his wife in these years. He's going to have kids in these years. And that, of course, would shape him as a man as well. But before he can graduate, in a sense, there's a final exam. And there's some questions that all of this is building up to as well. And those questions are, who are your people? Who are your people? What is your identity? That's something he's going to have to wrestle with. What is the right answer to that question? Who are you really? When is salvation going to come, and how is salvation going to come? What's our part in that? Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? These are questions for us as well. But specifically for him, it's going to be, how do riches compare to reproach of the Lord and his people? And and here's another question that he would have had to wrestle with through these years. Why doesn't God stop evil oppression? And should we step in? And if so, how should we go about that? These are big questions of life. Moses wants to do a good thing in this text. But it's a God thing that he cannot take in his own hands. He cannot do in his own way. He cannot bring about what he's wanting to bring about on his own timetable or depending on his flesh. We're going to see in this passage that God's servants need to understand their role, their relation to him, and they need to understand their readiness. Moses wasn't ready for what he attempts to early in this chapter. And so there's two big ideas Two lessons I want us to see in this passage here. And the first one is this. Deliverance and vengeance belongs to God, not man. Then we'll see how God's servants need to to learn their need. They need to learn their need. They need to learn their place. And then the application questions that we're going to throughout and where this is going to in God's word is, where is your life and identity found? There's going to be an identity crisis for this man. What is your life about? Where is your identity? Where is your treasure? 
Where is your heart? We'll look at all of that, but we start here, and, and really the context of chapter 2 starts with a, a baby in the basket in the Nile who's, as we saw last week, he's being hidden from the Egyptian version of the Gestapo. Last week I mentioned a book on pregnant women in Nazi camps, and I, I, misto- I misspoke on the details there. They were pregnant in the camps from their husbands months before, when, and it was actually near the end of the, the war, and they actually carried them throughout that, but they, the, 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 they were being delivered, their peoples were being delivered at that time, and they actually got to deliver at least these three ladies, their babies, right after they were being delivered from that camp. They were actually on a train at the time. An amazing story. There's a lot of amazing stories. I mentioned hiding Jews also, and, and after the service, I, I learned Elizabeth, one of our new members here who grew up in Holland, her parents and, and others that they knew were actually involved in hiding Jews there in Holland in World War II, and even uh, knew in some way of the Ten Boom family. There's a small world and a, and a big God. Amen? We have a big God. Hitler was a German, but he, he's we saw a lot of similarities and ironies with the Egyptians last time. But this is the world that Moses is growing up in, and he is aware that he is Jewish. Maybe some in the court didn't know that. We read in this passage how he looked like an Egyptian. But he sees a Jewish brother in verse 11 who's being beaten. And it's the same word for what Moses is going to do in verse 12. He's going to beat down the one who is beating down his, his brother. He's going to give him a taste of his own medicine. And in this context, just comparing verse 11 to verse 12, that's the same word. It, it may have looked like the slave was going to be beaten to death if someone doesn't deliver. And so we read in Exodus 2 verse 12, Moses looked this way and that and seeing no one He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Again, struck down is the same verb in verse 11, what the the man was doing to the Jew, and then what this Jewish man Moses does to the Egyptian. It's not the word in Exodus 20, thou shalt not commit murder. But it is at least manslaughter, and he is covering it, it up by covering the guy with sand. And you might say in the process, he's burying his own grave in Egypt as well. His, his life is not going to be able to continue the way he's known it in Egypt. This is a decisive moment in his life. His motive may be justice, but vigilante justice is not the way that God would call his people to or how he will save these people this is now a part of Moses' life. In this moment, maybe you've heard of a skeleton in the closet. He's got a body in the sand in Egypt. And in the movie, The Prince of Egypt, it makes it look like this scene is an accident, if you've seen that. There's a lot of good uh, things it makes you think about, but, but at least the way it's portrayed there, it's like, like an accident. He's trying to stop it and then kills the guy, but... There's two other ways to read verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. He looked this way and that and seeing no one. And so one way to look at that is he's looking this way and that because he's, he's intending to commit 
criminal, cold-blooded murder, and he's just looking this way or that. He wants to make sure there's no witnesses for this crime he's about to do. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at this is he's looking this way and that. He's not seeing anyone stopping this potential murder. He's, he's looking, is anyone going to do something? I've, I've seen a, a film of African slaves being beaten in the presence of others, others and, and, and the, the slaves there, it's just all they can do is they, they want to intervene. Something's got to be done, and they're holding them back. They're, they're beating this other slave as a lesson to them. It's a, it's a horrible thing. But anything inside a man wants to step up and wants to, to do something. And, and Moses is, is looking around. There's, there's no one around. No one's doing anything. This guy's being beaten and bloodied and, and made die. So the, the second way to look at this is he sees no one else stopping this this crime and this potential murder. And so he intervenes to defend the innocent victim and to stop the criminal Egyptian dead in his tracks. In other words, is he trying to be a hero? Is he trying to be a deliverer? Is he, is he trying to be an avenger? Is he trying to bring vengeance? It's interesting here, Moses is adopted and, and there's a, a history of stories, even in Old Testament times, where someone who was adopted became a hero fighting bad guys. So we can even go back to Greek mythology and see some of that, of of some who weren't with their parents, and then they they came and they fought against those who were evil. Sargon, in Old Testament times, had a very similar story to this. But we could go into modern times and think of Spider-Man, raised by his aunt and uncle, Superman, raised by humans, the sidekick Robin, who's taken under the wing of, of Batman so they can fight against crime, other, other superheroes. There's this theme through, throughout history of this adopted one who then comes to, to, to right injustices. And so is Moses, is, what he do, is he standing up for truth and, and justice and the, the, the biblical way here? Is that what he's trying to do? It's not right what he did, but, but is, is he... Is that part of what's in his mind? And, and another question is, will Israel welcome him as their hero? Whatever's going on in his mind, are they going to see him as a hero? Let's look at verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and ruler over us? Do you mean to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian. So no one else was there. Evidently this one that Moses delivered. Word is getting out on the street. And that word prince. Would later be used for a captain of soldiers. A judge by law was to avenge injustice. And and was to use the the legal system. to, To bring punishment and consequences to those who. If this was an unlawful beating that was taking place, there was a a way to to do that. He isn't law enforcement. And and the question is, who who made you this person? Who made you an avenger? When did you become Captain Moses? There's a sarcasm there. It's like, where's your cape as a prince? Where's your robe as a judge? It would be like saying today, where's your badge? And they could have said, where's that body? of that guy from yesterday. Who appointed you to be our mediator? We heard you're a murderer. 
One translation says, who made you a ruler? And it's interesting because this role of, that he's taking on here, there was actually a prophecy in Genesis 49 of a ruler who would arise, a Messiah whose robes would be stained with blood and, and would be like a lion who would defeat his enemies. That's the Messiah. That's not Moses. Later prophecy spoke of a coming prince of peace. Same, same word as here, prince. But Moses hasn't been made that guy. He's trying to be a peacemaker with these two guys. But they say, who made you a prince? Listen to this prophecy from Isaiah. Look at verse 12 again, same language. It says, Messiah looked and was displeased that there was no justice. So this is the Lord looking down. He saw, he, he looked here, he looked there, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation. That's, that's, a, that's the Lord's heart. And, and to some degree, you might say Moses has, has the right heart, but he's not the right person to do that. And that Isaiah may, that's Isaiah 59, 15 to 16, that may be echoing this event here. Same kind of phraseology. It's, there was an appalling injustice for Israel. And so Moses looks this way, looks that way. There's no one to intervene. He, he's appalled at this injustice. There's no one doing anything. There's no one who will step in. And so Moses thinks, Maybe I should step in. Maybe I should be that deliverer. He's the original justice warrior, if you will. But there's a warning here for those who would try to do what only God can do. Because the problem is Moses isn't the Messiah. Moses isn't the deliverer. We'll learn more about that next, next week. He, he's, he's not the Savior. Deliverance and vengeance is God's. And yet, this instinct that he has, this way that he's wired, God is going to use that. He's going to channel that. He's going to refine that. He's going to actually use this Moses to, to deliver his, his people and, and to, to bring an end to this horrible injustice and to teach them about true justice. But he hasn't called Moses to that yet in the burning bush. We'll look at that scene next week. But here, let me give you... Stephen's inspired commentary in Acts chapter 7. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, Moses defended, so he's defending the one who's suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and he struck down the Egyptian. For, listen to this, Moses supposed that his brethren would understand that God would deliver them by his hand. So he's actually thinking of God, and he's thinking, I'm... I'm who God would use right now to, to bring this deliverance about. It says they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them. So he's trying to reconcile those two brothers, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away. Who made you a ruler and judge? In other words, who are you to judge You've got a log in your own eye. You just killed a guy. 
And we can all see that log, and here you are trying to judge us. See, what Moses had done, even though it was a good thing ultimately that he wants to bring about, now he has set that back and he's put himself in the place where he is not a qualified person at this time to do that. He's trying to help God out. He's trying to help deliver. He's trying to to make right the wrongs. He's got the right idea, but he's going about it the wrong way, and, and we can do that too. It's not the right time. But later on, in chapter 18, we're going to see that this man will become a mediator, will become someone that his brethren, when they have a quarrel, will actually come to. He's going to reconcile disputes of the Jews and train up others to do that with the the people of Israel. He will be a mediator and a judge in that sense. And will even explain the law and justice to them. And he's later going to write things like, if a slave is being beaten and loses his tooth, that slave must go free. You're, you're never to do that with, with a slave. But also he's going to write in the law that you're, you're never to do revenge like I did. The, the very type of thing that he does, bringing vengeance by his own hand, is what he's going to write in God's law. We're not to do that. There's a system for that. His instinct for justice is good. And God will use that later, but, but Israel doesn't see him as a good thing. In fact, they see what he's doing is actually going to make it worse for them because he's going to go off, but they're going to probably suffer the consequences of this killing of a, of a slave master. And, and who is this Johnny-come-lately judge who's trying to swoop in, and he's got blood on his hands? He's acting outside the law. He's acting like he's above the law. So they're not going to trust him at this time, and you can't blame him. Quarrelers don't want a counselor who's a killer, especially someone who just killed someone the day before. You can understand why they didn't want his help at that moment. You can't be a good peacemaker when you're known for doing violence and vengeance within the last 24 hours. So Moses still has much to learn. Well, what can we learn by application in this first point before we move on? Well, here's, here's, here's a question for you, because our situations might be different, but how are you doing with patience? How are you doing with patience in other circumstances where things aren't happening in the speed that you think they should be? Where do you take things into your own hands? Where do you trust in your own strength and your own timing. Like we, can, we can do this in a lot of different ways, not exactly the way Moses did, but we can play God. We can try to take the place of God, the role that only He can do. Do you pridefully see yourself as the solution for other people's problems? Do you meddle? Do you judge others wrongly? I think that question is, who made you a ruler? We need to think about that. Are we, are we in our role in this situation? Where, where can we get ahead of God? Where are we tempted to not wait to let him work? We just, we just got to do it. We, we got we to gotta force it now. Listen, God doesn't need your help. You need God's help. And where you recognize those things, you need to repent. Ask His help. 
and then humbly ask as he changes you that he would use you in the right way in the right time in whatever way he would have in those such situations. Moses tries to help deliver, but he needs help. He needs to be delivered from his own impatience and impetuousness and his impulsive reactions. But isn't it encouraging that God can use imperfect people? Moses starts off as a very imperfect leader. We're going to see more of his imperfections and hesitations in the weeks ahead. But praise the Lord that he can use imperfect people. He can use us even if some really regrettable things have happened in the past. But we've got to learn through those processes so we can be useful. And that's number two. So number one, deliverance and vengeance belongs to God, not man. And then in the next section, God's servants need to learn their need and place. We need to learn our need as well as our place. Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. You might think, well, Moses, you know, you think he's part of the palace. He should have maybe special protection. He evidently doesn't go and ask for that. But I think we need to recognize that this Pharaoh, we've already heard, fears revolt. He fears any rival. In fact, he fears that, that these Israelites in his midst are going to rise up against him. And so he, he knows that this, that he fears this might be, this guy's going to try to start an uprising. And before you know it, maybe this guy's going to want to take the people out of here. And so he, he wants to kill Moses, I think probably because of that. But Moses, it says, fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. The land of Midian may not be familiar to us, uh, but we see Midian on the far right of the screen in in Saudi Arabia today. Up above that would be Jordan. So we've got this big wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula. We've got Egypt on the far left. And then if you were to go up there, it would be the Mediterranean. Up from Jordan would be Israel. And so Midian is outside of the kingdom of Egypt. It's it's off the continent of Africa. It's, It's way over in the desert. There's the, the Red Sea. There's the Gulf of Aqaba. So that's where Midian is. That's where he flees to. The geography of Midian was a, a, a faraway place. It was a desert place. It was a dry place. What's the ancestry of, of Midian? Who were the Midianites descended from? Well, Genesis 25 says Abraham married Keturah, and one of his sons through Keturah was named Midian. So Midian becomes the father of the Midianites. And so these are actually part of Abraham's descendants, not through the line of promise. But Father Abraham had many sons. So Isaac, Jacob, that's where Joseph and and Moses come through. But there's also in the line of, of Abraham, in Father Abraham, there's these Midianites. And it's interesting that we'll learn more about this this priest from the, from the Midianites, but there's, there's an ancestry connection here through Father Abraham to these Midianites. So there, that's some of the ancestry, but, but also this was a place of obscurity. And I think intentionally Moses wants to be in a place of obscurity, a place off the map almost and off the radar of, of Pharaoh. But God would use all of those things that I just talked about in his life in obscurity. And this is often the way God worked 
We think of Jesus himself who grew up in obscurity in a place called Nazareth. People said, Nazareth, anything good come from there? He, he spends most of those 30 years in obscurity. We don't hear anything about it except for when he was 12 years old, but then he begins his ministry. But before his ministry, he spends time in the wilderness. Remember that? He was tempted. He was tested in the wilderness before his public ministry. John the Baptist spent over 30 years in the wilderness before he comes and he's that voice crying in the wilderness. Midian is is in Arabia. That's also where Paul went when he was a new Christian. He went to Arabia for three years. He talks about that in, in Galatians where God prepared him for his ministry. He was developed there. So there's this pattern of God using the wilderness years or time and and, and there's lessons in this desert that are going to help develop Moses for his future ministry. And whatever it takes, we as God's servants need to learn, need to accept and, and learn our need and, and learn our place, not take God's place. And so there's some things Moses is learning for the first time. So he grew up in the palace till he was 40. He's learning for the first time hunger, thirst. He's fearing for his life for the first time. He's got to figure out how he's going to survive in the desert. He went from the house of the king to homeless in, in one day. He went from royalty and prosperity to adversity and obscurity and humility. Humility is going to be one of the things that marks his life later. He's going to become a man of prayer and all this time alone that he spent there would make him a man of prayer. We don't hear that about his early life, but that's what marks his later life, is he is a man of prayer. And, and he learns to intervene in that way, to, to intercede, not, not by physically beating down people, but to intercede in prayer for sinners. He'll learn about that. In his younger days in the palace, he had unrestrained pride and power. He was zealous and he was reckless. But this older Moses in the wilderness is going to develop Humble meekness. Meekness is power under control. It's not weakness. It's someone who's strong, who's able to control their, their passions. And so these years, these trials in the desert are going to make him actually what Numbers 12 calls the meekest man on the face of the earth. That's not Moses here in Exodus 2, but he's going to become the most meek man. Bodhi Bakum says in, in Midian's desert, God was getting, not only getting Moses out of Egypt, he's got to get Egypt out of Moses. So it's not just Moses getting out of Egypt. There's, there's some Egypt in Moses that needs to be gotten out of him. He's getting him away from the privilege of Egypt, but also the paganism of Egypt. John Calvin says it this way, brought up delicately and luxuriously in the court. He was not yet accustomed to the great and continual anxieties. God, in a manner, withdrew him so that he might gradually render him fit and equal to undertake so difficult a task. This experience of 40 years in such a laborious and ascetic mode of life did prepare him for any hardships so that the desert may well be called the school in which he was taught until he was graduated to that more difficult charge. 
So this is how Acts 7 puts that all together. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, so this gives us the timeline, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and he had two sons. This is what I'm calling God's back-to-school program. Okay, those, those years there. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert. He was sent. We'll look at that story next week. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. So that's the big picture. That's the the, the biblical timeline from Exodus to, to Deuteronomy. 40 years he spent in Egypt, 40 years then he spends in Midian, then he's going to go and he's going to bring Israel out of there, and there's 40 more years where they're going to be going in circles for a while, but learning their lessons as well as they're getting prepared now for what God has for them in the future in the promised land. So someone has said Moses spent his first 40 years learning something. Then he spent the next 40 years learning to be nothing. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life teaching others that God is everything. I think that's a good way to look at it. He, he, he thought he was something. He's learning something in his early years. But then in, in the middle years of his life, he's, he's learning that he's nothing. And then for the last part of his life, he is teaching everyone who will listen that God is everything. And I think that's exactly right. We don't quite live as long as he did, but just take your life and divide it into thirds. And think of what he did in that last third of his life and, and know that even what God is bringing you through in your life right now, he intends to use for the sake of others. But sometimes we don't see it in the, in the short term. We need to trust that this God is at work. So in Egypt, he's a somebody. In the desert, he's a nobody. But he's going to be proclaiming God to everybody. He's going to spend four decades in Midian. And this is also part of the land that he would later lead Israel through. So this is another thing. He couldn't have seen that at the time. But God's having him spend a lot of time in this land that's the very land that he's going to lead his people to. So chapter 3 is going to start at this mountain, which is going to be the very mountain that he's going to lead his people to. Mount Sinai is in Midian. This was his stomping grounds. He, he knew the land. He knew where water was. He, he knew what it was like to lead flocks through this land. And so, and so he's learning all of that. He, he's learning. He needed to learn patience. That would be a 40-year course for him. But he would learn it. He, he needs to deal with his pride well, here's what his job is, a shepherd. Chapter 3 starts with him as a shepherd. You know what we know about Egypt, what they thought of shepherds? Chapter 37, or at the end of Exodus, when they're, when they're coming in, Joseph tells them, tell them you're shepherds because shepherds are an abomination to Egyptians. So if you tell them you're shepherds, they'll let you stay far away because they don't want to have anything to do with shepherds. They're detestable to Egyptians. That, that was the one career path that was not in Moses's options of education. There's no major for being a, a shepherd. No one wanted to be shepherds. They wanted others from other nations and foreigners to be shepherds for them because that was an abomination to them. That's the very job that Moses would have heard that growing up, that he's going to spend 40 years being a shepherd. And he would learn suffering also outside the palace, lessons he couldn't have learned 
there. He would learn self-restraint in those years. He would learn how to be a servant leader, and we see some of that right here in the text. Look back at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And I think here we see the the kind of man that God is making him to, to be. He's, he's standing up. He's, he's saving. He's watering. He's serving. And so verse 18, when they came home to their father, Reuel, he would later also be called Jethro, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and, and watered the flock. He even did that. Watering the flock was the work of a servant. Women and servants typically did the water, and so these women are surprised. This strange man we've never met before, he not only saved us from those shepherds that are always harassing us, but he he actually drew the water for us. He insisted on drawing all of our water and then watering all of our flock. He drove away those bullies, but notice this time he doesn't beat anyone to death. He drives them away. You get the sense this this was a strong guy. But he stands up like a man. He saves them from harassment and then he serves them. That's that's what a a man does. He serves them. You want to be a a leader? Be a servant. Be a servant. First, how how are you doing serving others? I I know many in this room, you're, you're leading kids maybe on Thursday nights or other times, small groups ministries. But but here's a question. How are you serving others? How are you humbly seeking to see the needs of others and, and serving even in ways that they don't expect you to? They certainly didn't expect him to do this. And so this catches the eye of the guy back home who hears about this. He's got seven daughters. He hears about a valiant man. Well, why didn't you invite him to dinner? And he joins them. Soon he has a family of his own. And this would also be a way that God would develop him as a husband. There's something about being a husband, being a dad, that's just, there's just a sanctifying element of that. To seek to be a faithful husband and a father. Even 1 Timothy 3 talks about that. For servant leaders is one of the tests. Here's what Hebrews 3 says. Moses also was faithful in all his house. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. He was going to lead God's house later in the wilderness. But he was faithful first in serving those closest to him. And so as we'll get into chapter 3 next time, he starts out as a shepherd of sheep. And, and just to complete the picture there, he becomes part of Reuel's shepherding clan. But being a shepherd of sheep would have prepared him in a lot of ways that aren't hard to imagine. Because he, he's later going to have to lead and shepherd people through some very difficult times. And he would find out these people like sheep are prone to go astray. Um, they, they're prone to wander. They bite, sheep bite. They're not very smart. But he learned how to deal with the stubborn. 
He learned how to heal the hurting. He learned how to gently lead those who are struggling and be patient with them all. Like the New Testament says, we need to admonish the unruly. We need to comfort the faint-hearted. We need to encourage the weak. And we need to be patient with them all. That's what God calls us to do as well. Moses would learn his need for daily bread. That was never an issue as a daughter, or as Pharaoh's daughter is your, is your mom. He never had to worry about his daily bread, but now he's got to figure out his daily bread. But he's learning his place. He was content to live in a tent after he had grown up in that great palace. He's now identifying with Israel. From his early years, he couldn't sympathize with Israel. He didn't know what it was like. He could, he could see their plight from afar, but he didn't know any of that firsthand. He's learning a lot firsthand what it's like to be people who are outsiders, who are in a difficult position. He can relate to Israel now, but there's also an interesting note. Exodus 1 starts with the name Jacob, who's renamed Israel. He's the original Israel. In Genesis 28, Jacob also met God in the wilderness. So the, the father of Israel, the tribes that came to, to Egypt, he met God. He also met him in a wilderness where God spoke to him. And here, here's what one writer has pointed out. Moses is a new Jacob. Like Jacob in Genesis 29, Moses also, listen to these, he flees his homeland for his life. He comes to a well. Both Jacob and Moses came to a well and encountered female shepherds in some distress and then resolved their problem with, with, their, with their strength and then watered their sheep. That's what both Moses and Jacob did. After that, both of them were taken to the home of the father of the shepherdess and then they would later get married to that young woman. And so there's, there's some parallels between Jacob and Moses that are numerous and, and obvious. And that significance there is that Moses, in that connection, of those who've been reading that story, that they, they would sense there's something going on here like with our forefathers. And, and there's a new father of, of Israel now. And just like Jacob led their ancestors into Egypt, maybe this is the one who can lead our people out of Egypt which is exactly what he's going to do. And so it's just marvelous to, when you start seeing all these connections and all the details, the detailed ways in our lives that God is working his purposes together for his good and our glory, how he is preparing us through what we're going through now, through what's going to come in the future. And so Moses now can empathize. He can embody Israel. And he's going to take them where God already took him. He's going to lead the way to the, to the very place that God had already led him and, and where he had learned so much. And so Exodus 2, in some ways, is his own personal exodus. He flees uh, into the desert from Pharaoh wanting to kill him, just like Egypt later is going to flee from Pharaoh into the desert. They're going to flee this one trying to kill him, and they're going to spend 40 years there, just like Moses did. And so be encouraged. Moses couldn't see a lot of what God was doing in those years, but be encouraged. God is doing a lot behind the curtain. God is doing a lot that you can't see. God is working even in things now that you don't realize that he's going to use in the future. That is our God. God wants us to minister to others later through what we're going through now. And so the, the application and, and where I think we need to land here is, is to ask 
What is your life? What is your identity? This is the question that's going to come to a four here because the text begins and ends with an identity struggle, an identity question. So look at verse 22. Moses' son, he names Gershom, for he said, this is why he names him Gershom. This is what Gershom means. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is related to the Hebrew word for someone who's a stranger, an alien, living in a place temporarily. And even what he says here, he's, he's struggling knowing that this, this, this isn't my home. By the, how he's naming his son, he's reminding himself. Every time he would say, Gershom, come here, he'd be reminded, Gershom, yeah, this isn't my my home. I'm out of place here. I'm, I'm journeying. I'm, I'm, I'm passing through or, or I need to be. My ultimate identity, my ultimate life is not Midianite. And as I look back, he could say it never was Egyptian either. That's not who I was. They looked at him. They thought he was an Egyptian. But who are his people? Look at verse 11. So the beginning and the end of this text. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. That's not talking about the Egyptians. He looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Literally, it's his brothers. Those are my brothers. My people aren't where I just came from this morning. I'm going to my people. These are my people. That's my brother being beaten by this Egyptian. And and that phrase for when Moses grew up, that's used in another place that actually fills this picture out. So turn to Hebrews 11. As you turn to Hebrews 11, remember Moses was well-educated in many ways. He he, he knew mathematics. He, He could count the cost here. He, he knew about Egypt's pleasures and treasures. He could mentally calculate the wealth, the riches. If I, if I renounce my Egyptian identity, if I, I, I'm renouncing any inheritance to the throne, there was great riches. You know, we've learned about riches through like King Tut's treasures and other things like that. There's tremendous riches in this time. And he knows that there's reproach with the people of, of the Lord. He's identifying and choosing to identify with the, the slaves who it doesn't look like there's any hope for these people. That's who he's choosing to identify as his people. And so he knows there's reproach with them. He also knows there's great risk. If you make that king angry, the, the king of the mightiest nation on earth, there's great risk to, to your life. But he also knows there's great reward. We're going to read here that he knew there was a reward. There was a Messiah to come. And it had been promised to his forefathers through his people. And Moses is acting by faith here. It's imperfect faith. But he's acting by faith in this future Messiah, this future Christ, this, this future serpent crusher. He's going to believe is going to crush the, the serpent crown of Egypt. Genesis 3, Genesis 49, there's a ruler who's going to come. So look at Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he refused that. And and this is where it starts. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, Messiah. He, He considered that reproach greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, 
not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's more than we can see going on here. And it's by faith, and it's looking forward to the, the Christ to come, who he, he treasured more than anything else. He, he had faith in that Christ to come. And that's what he was thinking about, the, the writer of Hebrews says, is he's refusing to identify as the daughter of the king of this vast domain. He doesn't want to be in that, that sin's dread of, of Egypt there, anything that the world could afford He's identifying with Christ, and that's where we need to ask ourselves, is, is Christ our life? Is He our identity? Is He your treasure? Would you choose His reproach over the riches of this world if you had that choice? I can have Christ forever, but I've, I've got to go through the reproach that comes with that, or would I rather have riches in this life? Would you rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Or riches untold. Will you choose being faithful to, to his dear cause? Will, will you choose him over men's applause or, or over men's approval? Because that choice is going to come to all of us in different ways. It's, it's one thing to sing about that. It's another thing to see the reproach. See how the world speaks of those, those bigoted Christians and then choose to identify with them. Those are my people. Even as they're being beat down, at least verbally, to identify, those are my people. And when that pressure comes in school, those of you who are back to school and in a setting in the workplace where people are going to be saying horrible things about the things you treasure and hold dear, will you continue to be faithful? As you think of sin's fleeting pleasures like, like Moses did or... Will those entice you or will you see the true pleasure that is found in Christ? See, there's a lot of loss on a lot of levels. If you don't fully identify with the agenda of this world and all that it's wanting to, to do in, in all areas of life, or even if you don't identify with other people in the way they want to identify, but if Christ is your identity, if Christ is really your treasure, you don't need to give in to the fear of man. You don't need to fear the, their anger. Moses endured because he saw that there was an invisible God at work, an invisible Lord at work. He's looking to his reward and treasure in heaven. He was able to choose the reproach of Christ and his reproached, mistreated people. That's where he's going to spend his life, the last chapter of his life. And he wasn't ashamed to call them brothers. He wasn't ashamed to call them brothers, just like in a greater way, Jesus, Hebrews 2 says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Even though we've done some bad things in our past. See, that's even better than Moses. If we identify with Jesus by faith, he calls us brothers. He calls us my people. And he calls his people to be willing to give up everything. For the joy set before us, for the, like a treasure in a field. If you haven't yet come to the Lord as your Savior, as your treasure, I would urge you today, turn from the fleeting pleasures of sin. Trust Him. Treasure Him. Give all that you are for all that He is. That's the gospel according to Jesus. And you'll find unsearchable riches in Christ. You'll find His people. There's great value with his people to your soul.
And maybe you've heard these words, but let, let them challenge us to identify with God's people. As I, as I read these words, it's called the fellowship of the unashamed. I think of Moses, but I think of what we should be as well. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, and smooth knees. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy or ponder at the pool of prosperity or meander at that maze of mediocrity. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or praise. I don't need to be first. I don't need to be right. I don't need to be recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence and walk by patience and lift by prayer and labor by power. I won't give up, back up, shut up, or let up until I've preached up, stayed up, prayed up, and paid up for the cause of Christ. Until he comes... And when he comes, my colors will be clear. He says, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our great Lord and Savior, we thank you. We thank you for how you are at work in all of our lives. We thank you for the encouragement of of Moses with his mistakes and the things that he learned. Lord, we are in many ways like him, even if it's not exactly what we've learned about here, Lord, we can identify and we thank you that we can find our identity in you. Help us to be those faithful ones, the fellowship of the unashamed. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, our treasure. Amen.